the energy that goes into a biological organism defines its size and complexity. Reduce that energy, which is what's about to happen to us, the size of the organism and the complexity must reduce. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Simon Michon. Simon is an associate professor at the Geological Survey of Finland, and for years he's been researching the minerals crisis. The fact that we just don't have enough minerals and materials in the Earth's crust to develop a fully renewable economy. Simon's work shows that if we want a livable future, we're going to have to reduce our energy demands, our material demands, and live smaller, simpler lives. This is the second time I've had Simon on the show. He is the first repeat guest on Planet Critical. He joins me to give me an update on his work in the year and a half since we've spoken. He explains the mineral shortage for those of you who haven't heard the first episode. He then discusses the mining problem, looking at the fiscal structures that will make a renewable economy very difficult. He walks us through how renewables are underperforming and discusses the battery problem. He then explains how to engineer a society that is livable and sustainable for the future, introducing us to a concept he's been working on called the resource-balanced economy. He also takes a little detour to discuss uh, who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, which is a fascinating analysis of how the mineral and energy crisis is playing into geopolitics around the world. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. So when did we speak last? We have not spoken for, what, a year? Is it a year? A year and a half, yeah. year and a half, okay, all right. So what has been happening is things are evolving very, very quickly. I wonder, Simon, yeah. before we talk about the evolution, yep. could you give a two-minute summary for anybody that ha doesn't yet understand what the problem is with our minerals and our, our materials? Right. Okay. All right. So my name is Simon Michaud. I'm an associate professor of the Geological Survey of Finland. The last couple of years, I have been tracking information and data in the industrial system to understand not only fossil fuels, like what does fossil fuels do for us now? but our ability to transfer and phase out those fossil fuels by applying the plan that we call the green transition. And what I have found is this problem is actually much, much larger than first understood and that a lot of the very basics have not been done by our policy leaders. They have just been talking in vague platitudes without actually doing the actual math of the practicalities of what they're proposing. One of the outcomes I have found is that uh, the uh, ability for us to actually deliver the number of electric vehicles, their batteries, solar panels, wind turbines has serious mineral shortfalls, not only in production now, but also our industrial manufacturing capacity that is available in China, that's also too small, and 
our, our reserves and our resources and the resources under the sea are all not enough. Right. And, uh, yeah. and so, yeah. And so, so we've got a fundamental problem and the way out of it is just to make a different plan. But that very, very basic solution seems to be too much for a lot of our policymakers at the moment. And so there's a lot of hand-wringing going on. So what you're saying is that we have a fossil-fueled economy right now. Um, and as the listeners of the show will know, fossil fuel is very energy-dense, incredible fuel. Um, we sort of waste a lot of it um, because it's just so abundant. And we cannot substitute that fossil fuel economy with a renewable economy because we're lacking the minerals and the materials to do so. Yes. And uh, so, but even if we had those materials, we actually don't have the time to bring it online. Mm -hmm. And now we've also got the problems. We don't have the money either. Ooh. So they've really made sure to make the, the worst possible mess this or possible. Mm. You know, um, some very, very unfortunate problem solving has been used where everyone is assuming someone else is somewhere has actually already done this and everything's fine. Yeah. Everyone's referencing everyone else in a hall of mirrors with the understanding that they've not actually looked at actually going and phasing out fossil fuels because it's so easy to keep using it. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's, it's like um, an environmentalist saying, we don't want mining but then goes down to the shop and buys a computer. Yeah. Right. That has actually been manufactured on the other side of the planet using mining methods that you would think that are not only uh, unethical, but they're actually, we would consider them illegal. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. That's what the situation we have found ourselves in. And, and it, it is remarkable. Uh, it, it's like we've got a series of blind spots as a culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so it's, there's more than one. And one of those blind spots is we tend to believe our own bullshit. Yeah. And, uh, that, and th that is at all levels, but it's especially yeah. at the policymaking level. Well, what, what is the alternative? I mean, if we live in like a growth obsessed system and success yep. and development is measured by growth, then to start talking about degrowth is sort of antithetical to the whole project. Well, the basic problem is, is the last 50 years, we've used ideology to solve all their problems, Yeah. right? Um, our currency, for example, is now what's called fiat. It's mm -hmm. virtual. If we want to balance our budget, we just print more money. It's been this way since the early 1970s, right? And for that reason, we have become untethered from reality and it's the virtual financial world is where we believe reality is. Yeah. So meanwhile, back at the Batcave, reality is now starting to impose itself. Yeah. So here That's we are. That's a good way of putting it. The virtual financial world's where we think reality is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, certainly we see it uh, given, I mean, you'll be able to speak more on this than I can, but, you know, the obsession with net zero policies is if emissions mm. that go out to the sky, if they're balanced on some digital book in some way, yep. then it's as if they don't actually exist in the atmosphere, as if yep. they you know, the bio, as if the biosphere is digital in some way as well and can be deleted like mm. a series of zeros and ones. So what I've come to, the, this all comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of the commodities industry, mm -hmm. right? We, we believe like the last, I don't know, hundred years, our technology has developed in like a, a two to four year cycle where um, a need will arise and then someone will go out and they'll invent a technology and that'll change the world. 
Mm. And the point from having the idea to actually getting it to market in the private sector seems to be around two to four years. Not, right. not always, but, but, but the commodity sector takes 20 years to open a single mine. Right. But so it happens much slower. And the innovation in the commodity sector does tend to happen in very small increments. Mm. Oil and gas is different because a lot of money goes into it. But, but in the mining industry... The actual science behind mining hasn't changed much since the twenties. Yeah. Right. And, and so the engineering has changed as we sort of gone along, but the basic principle behind flotation, crushing, grinding, the last innovation was someone invented the hydrocyclone in 1920. Uh, and, and so, and, and we've also got the problem where, uh, um, things are actually being shut down where we've, we've gone for the highest grade deposits first and you end up with the lowest grade deposits later and we're using the same basic formula for the industry to actually operate and that has happened all the way along mm -hmm. and, and yeah when you say a first grade deposit and a low grade deposit does that mean sort of the quality of minerals that are being mined yeah so not only is it the grade so so for every like say ton of ore how much metal do you have in it and so uh, when I started my career in, say, the mid-90s, uh, the cutoff grade for copper was about 2 or 3%, and below that we didn't bother. It wasn't economic. Now the cutoff grade, or cutoff grades for feasibility studies that I've actually taken part of, is 0.1%. Hang on, 0.1% of a mineral within yeah. in a deposit of ore? Yeah, yeah. That's so a we've crazy gone... amount of destruction for, for very little... Yes, material let, let, let's say you had like a um a gold ring on your finger yeah. right that gold ring has three tons of waste somewhere on a mining dump somewhere oh my god right so this this is the this is the thing so we've gone from say two or three percent to point one percent in the space of my career you know one person which is you know which is what 28 years 25 years whatever it is mm -hmm. and, and so yeah, and, and and so the other problem is the minerals themselves that we need to what's called we, we need to what's called liberate it, liberate it from the rock. So with the little particles metal, we want them to be separate so we can actually then pull them out. But if the little grains of minerals are really small, right? The smaller you go, the more energy you've got to import in grinding, and it, mm. it goes up exponentially. It's not a linear relationship; it's exponential. So to grind from say uh, when my Korea started, the closing science your conventional copper plant was around 150 micron. What does that mean? Uh, so you've got to take the rock, then we're going to mm -hmm. crush it and then grind it. So most of what you've crushed and grind is smaller than 150 microns okay. in size. Okay. Right. And so, now, so imagine you have like a giant big pile of particles, and then we're going to put it through what's called a flotation plant, which actually uses a chemical or physical difference to pull out the metals. And so what we're, what we're doing is copper, for example, is what's called hydrophobic. It does not like water. Mm -hmm. So you put it into water and then you put bubbles in it. You know, lots of bubbles, like, like, like say, uh, in your washing up. And as the bubbles rise through that, a copper particle go, oh, there's a, there's a pocket of air. And it'll want to stick to that pocket of air mm -hmm. more than it wants to stay in the water. And so that rises to the, to the top and you have what's called a froth bed. Mm -hmm. Scrape the froth bed off. And you've concentrated to about 25% copper. Wow. So, and, and, that, and so that, and, but then you've got to then take that and then put that in a smelter, yeah. which will then refine it down. And, and then, 
to the point where you get 99.999% pure copper in a, right. in a refining circuit on the other side. So, so that, that's, that's what they're doing. So, but if you've got to grind down to 150 micron, right, that's X amount of power. But if you've now got to grind down to 10 micron, that's not a linear relationship. You've got this exponential curve called the Hooke energy relationship. So, so vastly more energy is required to go finer. And what, we've, and what we're now tackling is, is deposits that are very disseminated and small grained. So we're going to need much, much more energy and much, much more potable water consumed to actually extract a unit of metal compared to, say, 30 years ago. Right. So the problem is there aren't enough reserves to make the transition. The reserves that we do have are of a lower quality. Yep. The energy cost to get the materials out of those reserves that we would need and to yep. re, uh, refine them would also be higher. Yep. And all in the time when we are running out of the fuel that we currently use to yep. run our economy, that we would need to also build everything for the renewable transition. So it seems like a, uh, no, there's another problem again. There's, a, there's, another, there's another problem again. Our mining system at the moment is heavily dependent on fossil fuels. Yeah. So what, what we do is we send like a gas pipeline out to the middle of nowhere to a power plant that generates a lot of electricity and that electricity runs some of the machines. And you have a diesel truck and shovel fleet to actually bring in the ore from the open pit, right? And, and so we're not mining with solar panels and wind turbines, <laughs> right? And when we do, shit's going to get real. What does that mean? And, uh, a miner is actually based around uh, a bit, an economic feasibility. Mm -hmm. Is it economically viable to do? You know, the, the whole, it, it's, it's a very, very well-organized economic business model based on what's there, right? And at the moment, the cutoff grade associated with what is economically viable is associated with the mining costs. And power is a big cost, mm -hmm. right? So if that power triples or, or is now 10 times what it was before for one reason or another, then what is previously economic is no longer economic. So costs uh. are going to go up. What about the fact that uh, renewable energy is getting progressively cheaper? At one it point, is, is it going to get cheaper than fossil fuels? And then so, so hang on, it's getting cheaper when it's a still a small system. Mm -hmm. But 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 if it can be shown that we don't have enough minerals in the ground to make a replacement system, we will hit a asymptote in the market where all of a sudden there's now scarcity of metal supply, and the and the systems you want to use are no longer available on the market. So that cheap price cannot stay cheap. It's a temporary situation. It's a situation while, while we have metal to, uh, to supply, things are fine, right? But when we actually want to ramp up and actually sort of start doing this for real, um, then we've got a problem. So when I say shit's going to get real is when the mining industry now has to run in a situation where it is on non-fossil fuel systems only. Right. Uh, um, the, the manufacturing supply chain at the moment is only conceptual and we just haven't thought it through that like fossil fuels are a hidden subsidy for everything. Take that away. You've now got a hidden penalty. And I think uh, um, a lot of mining and a lot of manufacture will just simply stop. Right. Right. And, and that's just, mm -hmm. you know, what, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And then uh, I imagine yeah. it becomes a bit of a sort of descending spiral then as, as well mm. in that you've got, you've got mining that stops. And, and also, I think it's worth putting out at this point that um, 
for all the advocate of a transition, like there's lots of environmental discussions and problems around mining and the excesses of mining and the fact mm. that we do not prioritize our resource use. For example, you, you know, digging out gold, producing three tons of waste so that it can go on somebody's mm. finger. Um, but if we're in a position where we don't have fossil fuels to do the work and then mining progressively shuts down, then you can sort of kiss mm. goodbye to any dream of an increasingly expansive renewable economy. Yeah. So what, what ends up happening is uh, it moves out of an economic free market paradigm into a strategic asset paradigm because fossil fuels are going and we do need to actually, the only plan B we have is at the moment, wind turbines, solar panels, and EVs. We don't have a technology somewhere else and we can't wait anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So the green transition will happen. What I'm saying is it will be much, much smaller than we think. And so we're entering into a world of a energy contraction, like a sharp energy contraction. Uh, and we're just not prepared for it at, at the moment. Uh, and there's going to be a reordering and a revaluing of society. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so when we mine, for example, uh, we use what's called the net present value tool, which works out uh, how much, uh, the, the basic principle is, is if you've got like, say, a one pound note in your hand, that's worth more than if you maybe get, say, two or three pounds in a year's time, because you might not. It's, it actually has a discount rate for risk, mm. right? And so when you invest in something, you actually have a risk assessment on whether it's a worthwhile investment or not. And so the, um, the more metal you've got in the ground that's actually accessible, the more value that's involved. But if it takes such a long time to develop, because that NPV calculation is insensitive after about seven or eight years. What does that mean, insensitive? Uh, whatever happens after seven or eight years is of such a little impact, it's not really included in the calculation. Okay. So what that means is any rehabilitation costs of closing the mine down are actually not included in the startup cost in that calculation. Oh. Right. And so... so They've, they've got to include it in things like uh, as to get a um, mining license, right? But the economic viability is not linked directly to that because the NPV tool doesn't really allow it. Okay. Because it's, it's all about money uh, and, and they're all about starting. Like, like in the, um, South America, they, they're mining masses, of, masses and masses and masses of mining going on. You've got all these huge tailing dams and no one knows what to do with them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's huge, huge expanses of mining waste. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's all fine while it's a relatively small problem. Mm. Uh, but, but when the problems start to telescope out and get large, but like uh, the, the tires that come off the dump trucks in one of the mines, I think it's Escondido, or it's one of the ones in South America, that mm. tire stockpile of worn out tires is so large it can be seen from space. Really? <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> you, you can see it on Google Earth. Then I think, well, gosh, guys. Um, wow. And so, yeah. So, so, so if you're mining in, in like, like a mine that's been operating for, say, like, you know, 30, 40 years, and it's, and it's um, processing three or 4,000 tons an hour, and you're only taking 0.5%. Of the mass and the risk gets dumped somewhere. Yeah, now what? Where does it go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So when we last spoke, and I want to um, get onto what you think a viable renewable economy will look like um, and what, what that actually means. But when we last spoke, um, the idea was trying to trying to get more of this information in front of policymakers mm-hmm. um, and try and get them to listen. You've had success. Can you talk us through that? You spoke to the Yeah, UN. like it's, it's, it's a little strange for me still. Mm. I, I, I Like until a couple of years ago, I was just used to being ignored like everyone else. And yeah, this was considered normal. Um, so let's see, I presented, I've presented my work now since the release of the first report, say, which was what, uh, August, 2021 or July, 2021, something like that. Um, and so it's been what we're approaching two years mm-hmm. in that time. I presented my work over 160 times. I think oh. it's after 160, but it's always not, not always, sorry, but it's been often to groups that are, um, like government ministers of government, civil servants who are actually sort of advising ministers, um, universities. Uh, policy groups, investment groups. Uh, I've presented to the UN a couple of times, I think like three or four times now. And, and so, and in each circumstance, they're saying the same things. I'm not the f- first thing, first thing they always say, and it's, it's the same every time is they were in shock that they were not prepared for what I had showed them. Mm-hmm. They often say things like, this is like drinking from a fire hose, <laughs> uh, uh, because I keep uh, because every time someone criticizes my work, I go away and think about it. And then I add something into the next presentation to answer that criticism. Mm-hmm. And that's how you end up with such an information rich 30 minutes, uh, talk. And so, yeah, so that's the first, the second thing is no one has been able to refute my work and they, they don't criticize me to my face. The monkeys on Twitter, like throwing poo, but the people who actually work to my face can't refute it because I'm using their own data. There is one gray area of discussion, which, um, is something we should talk about. And that is the mm-hmm. size of the buffer for stationary storage power units for wind and solar. Oh, and the stationary storage power yeah. unit. Does that mean battery? Yeah. I'm using batteries, but there are other things you can use like pumped hydro storage and, uh, and oh, stuff that there are bottlenecks, every single one of those. We should discuss that in a moment of yeah. while that is. The third thing they say is, all right, you scared the hell out of us. Now you're going to fix it. I don't care how you do it, but you fix it and you fix it now. Mm-hmm. And so they want a solution for plan B and that's now in progress. By the way, did you read that document I sent you? I skimmed it. I didn't understand a lot of it. Oh, that, 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 yeah. Okay. That means I need to rewrite it then. Okay. Go I, ahead. I don't uh, think so. <laughs> I don't think that's what it means. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, so the people who are actually looking at this, they're not refuting it. And they often ask me to come back, mm-hmm. like the climate change fund in Finland, a group called Citra, they looked at this stuff and they go, Hmm, right. And, and Finland's a culture where it is based on, you know, let's look at the facts. And if the facts are uncomfortable, we've got to look at this. And that's more prominent here in Finland than anywhere else. Whereas in Australia, you've got the headless chicken approach to things that don't, that challenge their paradigm. Mm-hmm. Just don't worry about it. Leaves alone. So the, the, the Finns and the Swedes are all looking at this. And I've also presented to a whole lot of groups like the, um, department of energy in America has picked up on this work. Yes. Um, and they are actually auditing it internally and they're trying to sort out whether I'm right or not. 
and they mm -hmm. did their own study and they found that conceptually the problems, especially with wind and solar were correct. They're underperforming. Right. Uh, could, you, could you give us more details about how they're underperforming rather than just, okay, so beyond the, because I, I assume this is beyond the fact that we don't have the minerals to run yes, our This is something there. else. This is something else. Right. So wind, let's do solar first. Mm -hmm. uh, so solar is highly intermittent. Yeah. Now into, in, it's very vulnerable to the weather and it only works during the day. Yeah. So according to the Energy Observatory Agency, which I collect the stats on for what power was produced, not what they thought they did or what they promised, what did they actually report? And solar globally were on average was producing 11.4% of the calendar year. That's the operating hours that they delivered power. Okay. And wind was 24.9%. And so I think they can get up to 33% now. I, it, just, I think yeah. I'm misunderstanding this because that, that to me sounds quite good. So of our current energy production, solar is producing 11%. No, 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 no. Oh. For, the calendar, for the calendar year, 365 days. Oh, the existing plants yeah. were only producing yeah. 11%. Yeah, 11% of the time. Ah, okay. Right. So, right. so that's like for a 365 day year, they were producing power for 30 days okay. or uh, 40 days, whatever it is. Most of the time they are idle for these assets, whereas a coal-fired power station is available something like 92% of the time. Mm -hmm. So when you're re replacing a coal-fired power station, you're putting it with many, 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 many solar units and wind units because they're idle most of the time because they're vulnerable to the weather. There's not a damn thing we can do about it. Well, surely we can position them in strategic places like they're already, know, that's, the desert. We're already doing that. Okay. We're, you, 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 where, where it's actually possible to have these things, because then the thing you've got to transport the, the, the power out. Yeah. Uh, and so if, if you had, for example, solar power in the desert, it would be better. Because you've got better solar radiance, but then you've got to transport the power to where it's needed. And the closer you get to the poles, like North Pole, South Pole, the more extreme the difference between winter and summer is. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem, uh, so, so the Princeton University in America developed the Net Zero Project, Net Zero America Project. And so one of the things they looked at was how much buffer do they need? And so they looked at the day-to-day -day differences between supply and demand must balance to a millionth of a second. Oh, wow. Right. So, and it, it, it must be clean sinusoidal power without spikes. It must be the frequency of like 50, 50 Hertz. Mm -hmm. And it, it must be the same voltage, same current. Mm -hmm. And it, it, if it deviates even a little bit, it'll cook your computer. Mm -hmm. And like things like a blackout or a brownout, that'll cook your computer. So they can't, uh, it, it must be the same. So they looked at the, uh, uh, sometimes supply and demand, like, like when they're generating power, Sometimes it exceeds the actual demand load. Whatever exceeded, they're going to ca catch that and keep it. And then sometimes it's a little bit lower, like demand exceeds supply. And then they just release what they've, they've captured to, to make up the difference. So this is the difference between the day-to-day -day power generation. And so they thought they only needed five to seven hours of power storage buffer. Per day. No, for the whole grid per year, uh, as in a capacity for, uh, to operate continually across the year. Okay. Right. So it's a, it's a very small amount. What they did not consider is the differences of the seasons. 
like the sun in winter is much, much less strong than the mm. sun in summer. Mm-hmm. Solar radiance, solar hours. They didn't consider that. Right. And mm. so, so if solar now represents, according to the IEA, 38% of the global energy mix, mm-hmm. right. And yes, I think it's like 72 for wind and solar together. Right. So, so now it's, it's most of the energy is now uh, solar and wind. God. Right. So that, that's what they're proposing. Right. So, uh-huh. um, all right. So these, these systems are now so large, they've got to be internally self-sufficient. You can't balance them off against something else, right? And so that system has to ride through winter when we want to spend power to heat buildings, right? That Mm -hmm. also happens to be when we have the poorest sun radiance, Mm -hmm. right? And and so the difference is actually much larger. So so, uh, I I just used 28 days, which was a reference I found, but even that's too small. The real number's probably, you know, know, it could be twice that. I, 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 I don't think anyone knows. So what and this happens? Is the, the buffer that we're talking about. Yeah, this is the buffer, right? So, so what ha- happens now is it, most power generation is fossil fuel in some form, coal or gas. It's like sixty percent or so, uh, and some oil. That can be done in any weather conditions, any time of year, in any any location. And so, each power grid, what they do is no one produces exactly the amount of power they need. Some systems use too much, some too little, and then they trade it. Mm-hmm. They balance everything up by trading. Usually the gas industry, which is very flexible, can go, it can be turned up and down at will. And so the gas industry is the buffer glue that holds everything together. Take gas yes. away, we can't balance the system. Right. So if we are going to take fossil fuels away, but now we've got these systems that are highly vulnerable to the weather. Mm-hmm. Right. And now they're, they're, they're now the main energy systems. We have never had to actually balance uh, internally, a large renewable system. Mm-hmm. The, the wind turbines in Denmark, for example, are balanced by with power that are fossil fuel based coming from Germany and Sweden. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, and, and so that's how they do it. Right. But if you've got and that the system. Means, sorry, Sam. That means yeah. when they drop out, the fossil fuel power will, will kick I mean, in, will step in. Yes. Right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And so, that, and, and when they generate more, the fossil fuels can reduce a bit. And, and so they're able to, to do this through the uh, trading of fossil fuels, but a renewable power grid won't be able to do that. Right. And, and so it, it will, it will operate fundamentally differently and, and they just haven't thought it through. There's a, there's a few things in there that they haven't considered. Uh, and th- this is a complicated thing. You can't consider everything, but, but this particular aspect that they haven't considered is a problem. So, so I estimated 28 days. Wind and, and solar. Why 28 days? There was a reference I found that there's two references. One was 48 mm-hmm. hours, one was 28 days. Okay. One, one was like one month. One month, the whole system, that is the whole system, like one month capacity, and that's what we're going to use as a balancing buffer uh, okay. between everything. I've used one month for just wind and solar only. So I've actually used a conservative estimate based on what they recommended. But when you actually look at the solar radiance of, say, Berlin. And when you actually sort of, uh, 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 here's a good one, a, um, a concentrated solar plant was estimated in Spain by Ewan Mearns. Mm-hmm. And so he actually looked at what was actually generated for, for the month of June in summer and the month of November in winter. Mm-hmm. And so 
here, yes, but now this is actually balanced off with coal and gas. So, to, so, so it doesn't have to, but, but if it was internally balanced, it would need just for the month of November alone, a 16.2 day buffer. Right. So right. most of November. Right. Yeah. So that's just for November. Now for six months of the year, you're actually below par. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and so, right. So, so the 28 days is a really, really, really conservative estimate. And so what it means though, is if we can't work out a way around this, that we are not going to, um, wind and solar are actually not viable in their current form. Mm -hmm. Right. But the solution is not to flog ourselves to go off and find more buffer. Okay. Right. So the, the, actually, yes. And so why batteries? Okay. Yeah. Let's go so, into the so, energy storage thing. Yeah. So, so pumped hydro storage is the cheapest way to do it at the moment. And what so is got, pumped hydro storage? Is that when you pump water up to the top yeah. of the hill and then it's got and potential then, energy and then you release it as kinetic back, yes. energy? So, yeah. so you need to actually have a place where you can actually do that. A place yeah. that actually is capable of having a hydro plant. And then you've got a, 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 an elevator part where you can actually pump it up and it can come back down again. Yeah. And so now the problem is we need about 2,000 terawatt hours of capacity to be stored. It's something like it. Like it's, it's a, for the calendar year. Across the calendar year. Or, or, or the, um, this is the capacity they need to ride through winter. This is for the 28 days. Okay. 28 days equals 2,100 2, terawatt hours. Okay. Now that's huge. Now, most hydro systems that are actually okay for hydro already have a hydro plant on them. There's not very many left that don't have a hydro plant on them. Right. So now you've got mm -hmm. to find hydro plants with a place with a raised area. So they're a raised reservoir and they're even rarer. Mm -hmm. Now find 2000 terawatt hours capacity for that. Could you, could you get, what does 2000 terawatt hours means uh, for? us non-scientific people how much okay. power is that okay so in the year 2018 we used 26,614 terawatt hours wow so 10 percent of our global yeah. energy use almost yes as it as it stands now right okay. yes thank you yeah. yeah so so it's a lot yeah uh so you can probably expand pumped hydro a bit but nowhere near enough to meet that requirement. Then you've got things like compressed air storage in caverns. Now, that has engineering scaling issues. You can't just put it anywhere. And, and you need to have like a, a geological, you know, geomechanical competency underground. Um, and so you can do it for a bit. But again, 2,000 terawatt hour capacity. Yeah, so, so now we've got... And the other one is spinning flywheels. What are they? Uh, that you, you spin a flywheel up and it spins and spins and spins and it keeps spinning. And then later, then you use it to generate electricity because you keep spinning. Oh. And so it, 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 it works, right? Yeah. Has its application, but you've got your, you know, efficiency curves there. Okay. And again, you've got some engineering footprint problems. So a, um, and the other one's supercapacitors where you, it's like a battery, but you put, put power into it. But it also wants to drain away so you can keep it for a couple of minutes. Oh. You're not going to keep it for months. Right. Okay. So a rubbish right. battery. Yeah. Uh, but but <laughs> it, it has its application in trying to actually balance things at a perfect millionth of a second. Right. Okay. Right. And so anyway, so the Singapore government did a roadmap study mm -hmm. and they came to the conclusion that batteries were 
the preferred form. It's just a question of what chemistry to use. Because batteries can be put in any weather, in any location, in any footprint. Like you can have any shape. Uh, you, you don't have the logistical constraints of, say, you know, compressed air or, or, or flywheel bases or, or pumped hydro or anything like that. And what they don't understand is the sheer volume of power they need to operate. Okay. You know, they, they don't understand how much power that they need to actually store. And so what's happened is everyone has collectively missed this basic problem. The 2,100 terawatt. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the amount of, um, is, and the fact that we don't really have a technology to store that much power mm. for a long time, but uh, you've got, for example, um, six months of the year in say Berlin in the summer, you get lots of sun, it exceeds the, the, the average. Okay. You've got to collect that power and keep it for about six months. And then across winter, another six months, you've got to release it slowly to make up that shortfall. Mm-hmm. And so you're storing power for you know, sometimes 11 months, uh-huh. right? And a lot of power. Yeah, and so, and the closer you get to the northern the extreme poles, the more pronounced that difference actually is. Uh-huh. And, and so, and wind has the problem of these massive peaks and lulls uh-huh. where a windstorm will come in and you'll have like a really, really high amplitude, but you can have a swing of up to 48% of capacity. Because then after that, you've got like, say, a couple of days where it's, there's no wind at all. Yeah. And so the, even though it's a couple of days, the size of the peak dictates the amount of buffer you need. And mm-hmm. so I actually don't know how much buffer is needed for these systems. And I don't think anyone else does either. Okay. I just sort of hi- highlighted that this is a problem. We should look at it. Yeah. But the thing is, yeah. But Sorry, sorry but do we have, I mean... What is the battery field looking like? Uh, are there mega batteries in development? Will it be possible in five years' time? And what are also the minerals? Um, what would a mineral shortage do to the battery industry as well? So um, the battery system at the moment, everyone believes, I'm getting the numbers up now, mm-hmm. everyone believes that lithium-ion batteries are the thing. Like if you try and get a funding project through uh, Europe in particular, they won't look at you unless you're talking lithium-ion chemistry. Okay. Right. And so this is the problem. We don't have enough lithium. But the battery's options are uh, lithium, nickel, cobalt, aluminium oxide, or NCAA, NCA+, lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt oxides, or NMCs, like uh, NMC811 or NMC532, lithium phosphate, LFP, or solid state batteries and solid state batteries all require lithium. And then okay. you've got ben- vanadium redox batteries. And, uh, and so it's a combination of the, the, uh, uh, something in there and, it, and, and there's like the, the IEA have released a, a market share of what they think 2040 and 2050 would look like. And so that's what I use to predict the future. The thing is the sheer number of batteries is huge. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, like, like, um, Elon Musk, for example, released a, um, podcast, uh, about a week ago where he can now make batteries without lithium and he's doing it with a variation of NMC 532 chemistry. So, okay. Amazing. Good on you, mate. Good. But he now needs nickel, manganese and cobalt mm-hmm. to do that. So lithium and cobalt uh, and, and nickel, sorry, and cobalt 
both have shortfall profiles in the battery space because the sheer number of what we're looking at. So now we're back to a battery mineral shortage. Right. Okay. So, so this is the, you're going around and around. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. And so all, all the, but here's the thing, we can make batteries out of something else. You well, don't have to use this stuff. You can make them out of sodium. There's okay. a guy here in Finland that's making them out of table salt. Uh, uh, or, or you can make them out of the, you know, the fluoride in your toothpaste that can be used. Okay. Right. And so th this, the, or zinc. So these things are often, you know, waste products. Right. Uh, right. And so, so everyone likes the idea, but no one wants to look at these systems. They, they want lithium iron chemistry instead. It's like what we've put a, it's sexy. That's it. it it's, it's, it's literally a group thing. Yeah. Good. Because you've got to build a market value chain around a new chemistry. It doesn't just happen. Mm -hmm. You need to source the minerals, turn it into something useful like a metal or a chemical and a manufacturing plant to turn it into a battery. Then the mm -hmm. battery has to be suitable in an engineering state to be used in technology. And everyone knows what to do with lithium ion uh, chemistry uh, batteries, but they don't know what to do with, say, a sodium battery yet. Okay. And, and, and so they're all sort of, there's, there's lots of talky-talky, but not a lot of wickety-whack. And, and that's a problem across the board. But do people know exactly what to do with lithium batteries as well? I thought part of the problem with batteries is that nobody's quite figured out how to recycle them properly as well. Oh, yeah, well, that's the other. They know what to do, for example, of a lithium-ion battery in your phone mm -hmm. or in your computer or in a car, mm -hmm. right? Scaling it up is another thing, but the technology, we know what to do. Recycling, but when you say to do, you mean how to make them and how to make them, fit yeah, them how, into the current systems. Yeah, and how to make okay. technology. That's, that's, the, that's the part they don't know yet. It, at at the moment, it's conceptual. So the recycling stuff, there are recycling options in terms of technology, but the problem in recycling is not the technology itself. It's collection. Mm -hmm. How do you get the right residue into the right process plant? That's the challenge. Uh, uh, there's an interesting statistic. Most mobile phones have not been collected for recycling. Yeah. Most people have their old mobile phone in a drawer somewhere. Yeah. 95% are in a drawer somewhere. Okay. Right. And so, and if you're not going to get enough together in a, in a mass, it's not worthwhile to recycle. And then recycling the stuff out of a mobile phone is really complex because they're quite complex devices. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's not economical. So they just generally go for the, the gold, the platinum and the silver, and they just leave the rest yeah, yeah, go yeah. into landfill. Uh, Isn't it Apple so, that has a robot? They built a robot to dismantle Apple iPhones because they're so complex. Yeah. Um, so the Apple I, iPhone had no recycling solution uh, um, until this robot came along mm. where uh, everything was so micronized and integrated. You couldn't even take the battery out. Yeah. And, and as you, you've literally just got to throw the whole thing into the furnace and kiss goodbye all those rare earths. Um, and so, all right, so they've got a robot to do that, but now they've got to get the Apple iPhone used to the robot. Yeah, yeah. And that's the problem at the moment. And okay. So, yeah, but that, anyway. seems, that seems like a bit that we could solve. Yeah, yeah, please go on. Where are you going to go? So, so what we do is instead of trying to actually flog uh, ourselves to find more power storage, we develop an electro, electrical engineering technology that can cope with variable power. Okay. And so it's, it's tough enough that can survive, for example, frequency fluctuations and power spikes. And sometimes there's no power at all. Sometimes there is. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. So if we can actually sort of have a 
technology like a computer that could survive that, then we forego the need of the power buffer. So. It's a, it's a tough ask. Hang on, hang on, hang on. An electrical engineering solution that could survive the intermittency mm. of the grid. Does that mean like all of our things at home? What do, what do you mean? Solution? As many, as many applications as possible. Like if, if we can have, so instead of having one big seamless grid, could we have several grids that do different things? Okay. Like we might have like a highly intermittent grid whose purpose is to produce hydrogen. Okay. Right. And in that producing hydrogen, sometimes it's on, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's going really well, sometimes it's not. Okay. Right. So that's an industrial application that will chew a lot of power. Um, charging of batteries, that's an industrial thing. Like, you know, the, all, every serv, what, where we get our service station, where we buy our gasoline petrol from now, uh, and a parallel system of charging electric cars has to be introduced somehow. Okay. If we could link, if we could link the power needed to generate that electric power, can that be done in a way that is highly variable? Uh, yeah, you, these are the things. So at home, you might have a thing where you're, the lights that you've got on, and sometimes they're on, sometimes they're not. And we just, just accept the fact that things are variable. We're mm -hmm. very used to the idea of flicking the switch and there it is. Mm -hmm. um, like, like computers, for example, might run on a buffer for a period of time. But when it shuts down, it's got to wait till power comes again. And until then, you can't have your computer. It might be something like that. What that well, looks like, I don't know. And this is not this is not necessarily uncommon as well. Like we are very very spoiled in the West, quote unquote. But yeah. South Africa, plenty of rolling like daily rolling blackouts to manage yep. the the energy grid. Like mm -hmm. this is how some countries survive. Yep, that's right. Mm -hmm. And we all think that's not our problem. I can see uh, um, difficulties on multiple fronts here. Go on. So society at the moment, for example, is very used to like a just in time supply grid. And it's economic for the example I like to use is in Edinburgh, they go and fish for salmon in the sea. Right. So the fishermen who go and fish the salmon, they get this lovely salmon. What do they do? They put it on a boat and send it to Vietnam. In Vietnam, it's put in a tin. The tins are put on another ship and brought back to Edinburgh and put in a supermarket. Mm. So the fishermen who fish for the salmon, when they buy food for their, for their families, they go to the supermarket and they buy these tins of salmon. They could go down to a fish market and buy fresh salmon and use that. But that's mm -hmm. not what they do. Right. And it's economic to do. It makes economic sense to do that because energy is so cheap. It's irrelevant. Yeah. So, so we, we're going to start ma managing our energy and our material consumption. Like we manage our money. We are damn careful with our money. And I think it's going to become something like that. Okay. Okay. So we are looking at energy shortages, a decline in energy that is available, yep. a decline in time when energy is available. We're looking at a big energy contraction. Wasn't it, yep. you You have the stat that we are currently at a 19 gigawatt society and we need to go down to a five gigawatt society. Uh, I think Nate Hagen's uh, uh, had that one. I agree. Right. He had the 19 gig, uh, terawatt, terawatt, 19 sorry. terawatt society. And he said, we need to go to a, a 10 terawatt society. And I laughed at him and said, it's probably going to be two, maybe five if we're lucky. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, because here's the thing. It would be different if we started 40 years ago 
and we slowly organize things over time, but we've done nothing. 1% of the electric ve- of the global fleet of vehicles is electric vehicles. That's at 1.1%, right? Mm. And renewable energy is still what, 4 or 5% of the primary energy pie. We've done nothing. Right. So, right. So what that means is the, the whole non-fossil fuel system hasn't been built yet. Yeah. We, we just, we just haven't done it yet. And things are about to go seriously inelastic economically. Mm. We, I, I reckon, oh, well, it's an opinion, right? But by the end of this year, we could find ourselves in a kinetic shooting war, East versus West. As in Russia and China versus everyone else. Mm-hmm. Now, ethics aside, we are dependent on both of those countries for everything we actually need. And so we've allowed ourselves to be in a conflict without making ourselves self-sufficient first. Mm-hmm. And what that means, we want to buy, uh, I don't know, 100 million electric vehicles and say 10,000 wind turbines. Where does that all come from? China. Who makes this stuff? China. Who does the mining? China. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, we don't have the money now, but be nice to us. Hang on. No, no, that's not going to work either. Uh, and so this stuff's not going to be available in the market. Yeah. And, and so we're going to have like a step down, even if we got serious and said, right, we now want 10,000 wind turbines. The time it would take the Chinese to, to deliver on that is, is, is years. It takes time to make this stuff. They've only got so much capacity to start pumping stuff out. And, and what if, if we're not, if we're not going to get along, they're not going to give it to us. Absolutely. What, ab- what about our engineering know-how and our industrial manufacturing capacity? Okay, sure. So we have to develop a local capacity in, in the British Isles, right across the British Isles, you have a history of mining, but mining is considered dirty and filthy and unenvironmental. You don't do mining anymore. You depend on it from somewhere else. You offset. How long? How long would it take for you to establish a mining industry in the British Isles again? And so, well, if you got serious, you're talking you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So it takes that long to build this stuff. Yeah. On top of that, now you've got to have the ability to smelt the stuff into metals. At the moment, we get the Chinese to do all that. How long mm. would it take to build the smelters? Again, 15 years, maybe. And then on top of that, so you've got a lot of manufacturing capability in the UK. And in fact, um, there is a plan I'm putting forward that um, Finland, what's the size of the circular economy? That could be right across the Nordic frontier countries, but we need a dance partner. And I'm proposing the UK is that dance partner. Um, Why? In, so the Nordic frontier can tie up the one end of the value chain from mining to chemicals, uh, to refining chemicals and metals, uh-huh. but we don't have any manufacturing capacity. Right. The UK has the manufacturing capacity but you have shut down and, and, and atrophied your resource sector, mm-hmm. right? So we can, so that we, we can actually take up one end and you take up the other end and we do business. Right. And now that, now that, now that you're outside the EU, you're actually easier to deal with. <laughs> right. Right. So. <laughs> I think that's yeah. the first time anybody said that sentence ever. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, look, I've been burned at the stake for less, so we'll see how that goes. Um, uh-huh. So. All right, but uh, yeah, and, and so it will take time if if the UK decides to get real yeah. and and actually sort of build its own capability. We're talking years, fifteen, maybe twenty years, maybe more. 
things are about to get real between the West and the East in the next few months. Right. So we're, so we're down to months and, and we tend to do stupid stuff. Like we throw economic sanctions around and I, I don't believe there are any good guys in that conversation. We're all doing dodgy stuff. All of us. Who blew up the Nord Stream uh, pipeline? Right. <laughs> Who indeed? <laughs> Ask, asking for a friend. Because whoever, who, so whoever did that, they've guaranteed that Europe is now in a situation where it must be committed to a military action that it cannot actually win. Uh, uh, well, we, we have not maintained our military co uh, competency in terms of number of units on the ground, number of tanks, number of planes, no, you know, that the Ukraine war has emptied the stockpiles of all their consumables right across Europe. And you can see that because people are now reluctant to send more stuff in. And when they're sending mm -hmm. stuff in, they're sending it in and like, we're going to send 12 tanks. 12 tanks. Marvelous. Good one, guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, hang on. We're, we're just right now, I know nothing about the, the conflict in Ukraine, essentially. Mm. But apart from stuff on Twitter. But let's devolve a little bit. Because, I mean, last I saw, Putin was taking trunk, uh, trunks tanks out of museums yep. to put them yep. to the front line because the war is not going well. I mean, he thought it would be done by now. We're what a, a year into this now. Um, I, think I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of bullshit that we're being fed from official sources, and we actually don't Perhaps, know what's really yeah. going on. Yeah. Numbers on the ground, uh, are the Russians losing? Are they taking casualties? Question, do they care? Mm. Russians. Um, so the Ukrainians had a fleet of something like 3,000 armored vehicles, right? They're down to something like three or 400, right? And, and so the Russians are sending in several battalions of new troops sort of coming in. And even if they're dodgy stuff from museums that are all rusty and in, in your Soviet era stuff, uh, sending 12 tanks when they've lost nine, they've lost two and a half thousand, it's not going to change the calculus. It, it's, 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 it's like, it's like, it's a war that everyone doesn't take very seriously. Yeah. And, 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 and they, they want to fight to the last Ukrainian, but they won't actually commit themselves. Mm. There's I, no airstrikes going on, for example. But I thought that was because of the whole fear of like really NATO getting involved. And I thought but the NATO, whole thing with the Nord Stream pipeline was that it was the United States government that blew that up. Yeah. Well, that, that is my information too. Yeah. Um, that, um, and that's been passed to me from the American sector that they believe, yes, it was the Americans. Not yeah. only that, that they would, they didn't do that with congressional, um, oversight and they've, it's actually an act of economic warfare against their own ally. And what I'm hearing but, uh -huh. in Germany is, is there's a very internal discussion about who our allies really are. Um, but there was a partner company, a partner country in there too. It was either Poland or Norway. Yeah. And so, uh. The, the do, dodgy, 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 dodgy. Because my, my, it looks yeah. to me, sorry, but it looks to me that essentially that move was in order to sort of like take and maintain energy dominance because it's yep. the United States that is now like rerouting the natural gas routes and like making sure that, uh, that Europe has got enough and essentially indebting Europe in some way um, and making them rely on the, yeah, the energy streams that they, they, um, now depend on. Now that the Russian energy stream is out of the picture, Europe very much depends on the United States for energy supply. Is that not correct? So, so there, there's actually more to that story. 
I'm just going to pull up the actual numbers here. So the gas industry, if we were to actually look at in terms of production versus consumption of gas, all countries dominate the gas industry. They are Russia, China, and the United States and Iran, right? But those big countries of production also have to be the biggest consumers, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what can they actually bring? And they also have the biggest reserves too. This, I believe this is a function of peak oil being in November, 2018. That's for crude oil. Gas is a different matter. Uh, Art Berman's the best person to look at in these sort of terms. So, so Russia was supplying to the market net supplying 227 billion cubic meters a year. And then that's gone. Europe, the European Union in 2021, near 352 billion cubic meters of gas as it was. Now. If you put Qatar, Norway, and the United States together, that's 354 billion cubic meters. So they can just do that if all gas goes into Europe. But to do that, they've got to throw over all existing contracts, right? So then you've got the problem of infrastructure. How do you get gas from the United States into Europe? And they've got these liquid gas um, terminals and they are building stuff, but there's no storage capacity. There's no infrastructure to, for the flow of gas to go through. And so what's happening is a lot of industrial operations in Europe are leaving Europe now and they're going to the United States, you know, and, and China in some, some cases. So what that means is Norway is producing 110 billion cubic meters a year. So whatever's coming down, uh, the day after, um, Nord, Nord Stream pipeline was blown up, they opened a new pipeline between Poland and Norway with the, with the suggestion that, okay, it's all done. We don't need the Russians. Okay. Norway is producing 110 billion cubic meters in their total production. Europe needs 352. Whatever comes down that pipeline, it will be nowhere near enough to supply Europe. And whatever they send down the pipeline has to be taken from the UK. Right? Mm. So, so the Russian gas cannot be easily replaced in the market the way it was. And the only way out of this is for someone to go without. And so Europe is now in a conflict that it actually can't, there's no acceptable outcome. And so whoever blew up the pipeline uh, did it in a fashion where no diplomatic solution now can be uh, taken. It must be war. There's no backing out. And what I see it is as a grudge match between the BRICS communities and the Anglo banking system uh, based in Washington and London over which financial system is allowed to survive. So what's happened there in 1973, the U.S. Uh, um, made an arrangement with Saudi Arabia where all oil trades have been done in U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. And so everyone says, all right, U.S. dollars are now the global reserve currency. This currency for that energy. So the Russians invade Ukraine. What do we do? We hit them with sanctions. Two days later, they say, right, well, you will now pay for our gas using rubles. Mm -hmm. And everyone says, that's not the agreement. I said, but hang on, you, you've hit it with sanctions and that's a breach of international law. So we can now, so whatever agreement we have is now scratched. And so you will now pay for a gas with rubles and they could do that and the gas would flow, but that's not acceptable, right? So the, the ruble is now backed by a basket of commodities mm. and the, the Chinese yuan is about to go the same way. So now for the first time, we've got currencies that are commodity backed, not fiat currencies. And if that is allowed, 
the debt saturation associated in the US dollar and the euro will make them default. Right, so this is a grudge match of winner takes all and the loser must lose everything. Right, and the Ukraine war is being, in my, this is an opinion, Ukraine war is being used as an excuse to force the issue. And I think the next bastard move we'll see from the Russians is grain for rubles. Mm. They've cornered the grain market with the Chinese and there's food shortages coming. And so you will use rubles to buy our grain. Not that the grain's not available. You will use rubles. But the people who lead us go, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. We've got to protect our, our finance system. And so we're in a very ethically gray area now. Okay. And put in one final puzzle piece for me then. And so the United States blowing up Nord Stream, allegedly. Allegedly, what did, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what does that achieve? So they had a pipeline. If the Russians want to cut off the gas, they just cut off the gas, right? But if the pipeline's blown up, right, they can't turn the gas on. So the, so the Europeans cannot be forced back to the negotiating table. All right, yeah. we will now reach a settlement. Give us the gas. We can't mm -hmm. give you the gas now because the pipeline is gone. We can't pay in rubles because the pipeline yeah. is gone. Yeah. We can't, yeah, we can't validate and your commodity so, being, your currency being commodity back. So, so to look at this from orbit, it looks like the US dollar system is cannibalizing Europe. Europe at large has been thrown under the bus to maintain the dollar system. And I'm hearing, I'm getting phone calls from the people I know in the German civil service who are, there's a very hence internal conversation going on. And the problem they've got is all models for the future of, that they've got have crashed. And now there's a very bitter dispute about which paradigm should go forward now. Do we go back to nuclear? Do we open coal mines again? Do we somehow magic up some solar panels and wind turbines? They don't know what to do. And, 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 they, and they just don't, they, they don't, that conversation I had with them was about eight, nine months ago. I don't know what they did. Right. Uh, um, but, but they're an increasingly desperate situation. A lot of industry in Europe has worked out well, we can't operate here because our gas supply has been weaponized. And so now they're going to the United States and the United States wrote the inflation act about the same time that Europe, mm -hmm. Europe was convinced to apply the sanctions. Okay. So we've been oceans 11 by our own allies. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, and they're saying things like come to us, set your operations up in, in America and they, they want their industry back and we will never hold you to ransom for your supply of gas. You're welcome. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> you yeah, dodgy yeah. bastards. Yeah. Well, it's been, it's been very interesting to watch these negotiations. I mean, Europe was furious about the Inflation Reduction Act, but by the same token, I mean, what, and perhaps this was me misreading that, that piece of legislation, but it does seem that if you want to, like, we're just going to have to make things more competitive in a sense, and we're just going to have to supply, I don't know, whatever it is the United States is supplying, but you're saying yeah. they're supplying natural gas. They're supplying raw materials, natural yeah. gas and oil, and which Europe, Europe doesn't have. And also Europe does the thing where we are more sophisticated. We buy the stuff off the market. We don't extract our own raw materials. Yeah. We don't do mining. Any manufacturing in Europe is made on components made in China. Yeah. So we've made, some, in summary, 
the Europeans have made some flamboyantly stupid decisions, which have made them irrelevant. Mm, okay. So in all that you're saying, Europe is in a particularly weak position of yep. the developed world. And of course, like this conversation has not particularly engaged with the, the problems in the global south, which are resource rich, but have yep. been sort of manipulated into low value added manufacturing and deliberately denied the capacity to become independent and sovereign and all this kind of thing. Yep. But in the Western world, Europe, Europe's in the shit, essentially. Yes, but it's not clear who's manipulating who. And mm. I think everyone's doing dodgy stuff. Okay. Right. You know, for, for example, um, the war in Libya mm -hmm. was led by an, a NATO airstrike from France, which took a developed country, which was peaceful and destroyed it. And now you've got slavery, actually, slave markets operating openly. And they're still there. Yeah, years later, no one's done oh, anything about it. Europe's yeah. not innocent by any means. No, 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 no one is. No mm. one is. And and so, uh, but in Europe, we often hear, "We are better than them. Mm -hmm. We know what to do. We should tell them." Ah, oh, right, right, right. Uh, there's this there's this general sort of lack of reality, uh, um, with with all of these things. And I think we're in a process that we are being smacked down. So, so peak oil was a thing that was projected to destroy society. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that peak oil is November, 2018. Yeah. And when you actually look at the chart, it, it's still going down. I don't think it's going to come back. Yeah. But peak oil was associated with our ability to have gasoline and petrol. Mm -hmm. They're now making gasoline in the United States out of gas. So 48% of the gasoline coming out of the United States is sourced from natural gas oh, and wow. biofuels. So what that means is our normal conception of what peak oil actually is now has to be re-looked at. And we're using the gas industry to prop up the oil industry. Yeah. Now, calorifically, that's, that's not terribly bright uh, because, you know, oil was much richer than gas yeah. uh, calorifically. So, so your energy return on energy invested, you'll be lower. Mm -hmm. And we're now building in a very, very structural inefficiency into the gas industry, but they're holding it together. And so it's possible our total liquids consumption could beat the 2018 record. But oil, oil has contracted and I don't think it's coming back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody I speak to thinks it's coming back. Yeah. Um. All right. So... We're in a pretty bad way. Um, we don't have Fix enough it. stuff. Yeah. Fix it. <laughs> we don't have enough stuff. We don't have enough capacity. We don't have very many friends. Um, and even for those of us living in this part of the world, used to lives of huge luxury, those luxuries are going to go, and rightly so, because they're built off the backs of exploitation and extraction. Um, but our policymakers are sort of seemingly blind to what's going on because it would demand an, a massive overhaul of the status quo. However, I understand that you are working on a model called the resource balanced economy to yep. present to them. Could you walk us through that? Right. So the Swedish government, they, they asked me directly and says, okay, um, could you, because I'm part of a group called the Circular Economy Solutions within the Geological Survey. And so we've got our hands on what we call the circular economy. And it says, could you redesign that circular economy in context of your work? That is, we're about to lose fossil fuels. We don't have enough resources to do the green transition, et cetera. What do we do? And so I find it's futile to try and sort of dictate what the future will be. 
like so, right? So what I've done is try to understand the boundary conditions of what the future might be and to understand where we put our effort. Now, wh where this came from, are you, this might make you laugh. Um, oh, she's laughing already. Look at that. Um, so I used to work on an organic farm as a laborer. Great. And so I was learning how to grow food and you, you often, and, and so you see things every now and then. And, and so there was an example where we had like a row of fruit trees, a couple of rows of fruit trees, and they had a fungus on them and that fungus was killing the trees. One row, we put a fungicide on, right? So to, so to, to try and kill off the fungus. And we ran out of fungicide. So the other row of trees, we put the uh, natural fertilizer down based on a soil test to balance out the soil and give it. And six months later, we come back. I don't know how long it was, something like six months. The row of trees that had the fungicide on it, the fungus was mostly gone, but not completely. The trees were still alive, but only just. Mm -hmm. Trees over the, over the row that, were, that we just put the fertilizer on, they were thriving and the fungus didn't exist. Right. So what the learning from that in a long-winded way to, to get around to this is instead of actually flogging yourself, trying to prevent a problem, put your energy on what will thrive and work in the solution set. And then that will override everything else. Mm. So industrially, where will things likely to work? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, if we've got the twin problems where we don't have enough energy and raw materials as well, and a particular stuff arriving on the market, um, in Australia, we get hit with natural disasters every now and then. And what we do when you have an emergency is everyone puts aside their normal op mode of operation and the society comes together and we say, so we will now do what is necessary to see to the needs of those societies. For example, in the town I lived in called Brisbane, it used to flood every now and then. And so like whole suburbs would be underwater. And when the water recedes, everything's covered in mud. And so the mud army deploys. People from all over the city would then come in with, with tools like shovels and brooms and everything like that. And they're transported in by the city council to try and help everyone clean up. Right. So in that environment, something's gone wrong. What do we do? The normal use of ways of doing things are finished. So in an emergency context, Something we really need to have happen is no longer available. What do we do? And yeah. And so, so, so it's, it's almost like a wartime problem solving or an economic depression problem solving. Do we collectively sit on our butts and wait for it to get better? Or do we realize that this is not getting better? We've got to fix it. And to fix it, we've got to build something else that we've not seen before. Mm -hmm. And once we collectively understand that, right. First things first, I think. Be, we are surrounded by useful stuff that needs to be repurposed. Right, like you know, all those ICE cars, right? They're full of useful things like you know, alternators and, and bearings and wheels and, and, and the, the panels, for example, could be used. So we're going to see a return of the old boneyards that will collect stuff and people are going to be stripping useful stuff out of them. And the useful stuff will then be stored in a shed out of the weather and they'll be fed into a series of machine shops to make stuff, new machines, new devices, whatever. Uh, and could we look at our electronics like that? Mm -hmm. like in your computer, you throw it away. But what if someone was to pull apart the computer and harvest all the bits out of it that still might be useful? Mm -hmm. 
like just because the, the motherboard's burned out, does that mean you can't use the graphics card yet and so on? And so you're going to have a, the boneyard. And so recycling will become more prominent. But before we get to recycling, we're going to be do repurposing. The transport sector will take the biggest hit. In Finland, for example, 80% of our electricity is already coming from non-fossil fuels. And we've got a heavy industry system of smelters and refineries that are actually already operating on non-fossil fuels. It's amazing, hey? That's no. not the case in America. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Um, but most of the transport sector is fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. The tap gets turned off or, or, or becomes very volatile. Or the government says, this is now so expensive and we don't have a lot now that we're going to start talking rationing. Whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so the capability of transport is going to contract greatly. What do we do? Well, instead of actually driving small per personal cars around, we all go to communal transport like buses mm -hmm. and trucks. Mm -hmm. And so everything we do will be less quantity, higher quality. Do we really mean it? We're a very wasteful society at the moment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's based on whim, not what. Imagine a society where what you do, what you need, and what you want all become the same thing. Hmm. Right? So, and, and, and that's, that's not what we are at the moment. Yeah. Right? And so it's, it's going to be a rough learning curve. Um, yeah. So these are the things to think about. Yeah, definitely. And, and so, so transport will contract, energy use will contract, people will adapt. And so we'll become a low energy society. Where do we get our food from is a big problem. Yeah. And fertilizer as well for making food. And so we've got to get off petrochemical fertilizers anyway. Yeah. But it would have been preferable not to do it like this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what you mean uh, with inevitable food shortages? Yeah. And, and, and fertilizer production and, and, and stuff like, mm. so, so here in conventional industrial agriculture is a problem for every bushel of wheat we take to the market 0.8 of a cubic meter of, of, of soil is sterilized. That is soil that's full of the soil food web and, you know, organisms and organic matter goes to sterile dirt that won't support agriculture. Wow. I'm right, sorry, been going... what, what was the 0 0.8 becomes? For every, yeah, for, every, for every bushel of wheat, 0.8 of a cubic meter becomes sterilized. Wow. Land is deteriorating. Arable land has de uh, degraded where, you know, something like about 40, is it 40%? Since 1960, the start of the, when, when the Green Revolution really kicked off, 40% of land has deteriorated and it's shrunk. Okay. So we've got a massive population, but less land to grow it on. And we've gotten away with it by being more efficient about growing food on that land. Okay. And the runoffs from industrial ag agriculture goes into the waterways, mm -hmm. and that's overloading the phosphorus cycle and the nitrogen cycle on a planetary scale and it's acidifying the oceans. Mm -hmm. That in conjunction with the plastic we're dumping in the oceans. Right. So, so the whole food system at the moment is the problem. Yeah. And so to me, the solution is we all go to many small scale organic operations mm -hmm. and we merge growing of food 
with the biodiversity natural systems using permaculture. Now, that's not a very politically correct thing to say. Why? In a meeting that though, when they're talking about growth and jobs oh. and economy, and uh, then I get told things like, have a cold shower, please sit down. <laughs> uh, um, yes. And, and yeah. so everyone understands the problem. They just don't know what to do about to get there because it, is, it will it'll result in a community that is deeply unhappy about being told they have less. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I suppose that depends though, right? And I think that's where narrative comes in. You said at the beginning of this uh, episode that we've been using ideology to make decisions. Hmm. Like storytelling is such an important function of how we get things right and wrong and how we make decisions. And I think that now is a particularly interesting time for change, given how turbulent everything is and just given how shit life is for so many people. Mm -hmm. I think like people are having less and less and less in a growth economy. So I yep. think this idea, I think there will be people who will wake up to like, okay, maybe I can't have the latest thing or the idea of the latest thing as quickly as I want it. But the way the economy is going or the way that my life is right now, I can't have it anyway because I'm not getting paid a real wage and I'm completely divorced from my labor and from my means and all this kind of stuff. So like, yeah, put me into a community where we can be vaguely self-sufficient. Um, and where I can have more autonomy over my life. I, I feel like now is the moment where those kinds of decisions can be made and where people are sort of gravitating towards a different way of social organizing because they are very much seeing that this top-down approach, well, it's the little people underfoot that get squashed. So that might be the case, but uh, ha hold the phone. Where do we get most of our stuff at the moment? China. Right, no, yeah, but so, so, so if that checks out and we don't have any useful way to replace it. What we're essentially saying to most of the population is be a climate hero, kill yourself. <laughs> no, I disagree with that. That is not what we were saying. We were saying that, you know, we haven't organized this well enough and everybody's yeah. going to have to, you know, we're going to have to, re yeah, we're yeah. Have to rebuild our country. But if you mentioned war and like there was a longitudinal study done uh, during World War II and afterwards for mm. 20 years, found that Britons were happiest during the war because they had a common purpose, they had a common mm. enemy. And, mm. you know, the normalities of life got put aside to do something together, to achieve collectively. Mm. So, again, I think it depends on, like, how the story is told and the, the way that it's told oh, yeah. to people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I agree, agree on that. It's just that the, the difficult situation we find ourselves in, the price of doing nothing and, and you know, uh, using ideology in a hall of mirrors mm. um, to make our narrative. And then when the, when the veil lifts... Yeah. It's, 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 it's like humanity collectively has walked to the edge of the pier and then said, oh, oh, it's all gone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've literally <laughs> run out of runway. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like the music stops and there's yeah. not enough chairs. Now what? Uh, yeah. So, so, so we've got to collectively understand that our normal ways of thinking aren't going to cut it. Yeah. So this, this is the idea where I believe society is going to split into four basic paradigms. And, and so you know, how, how do we respond to this? And, and which of those paradigms are actually going to be useful? And which are, <laughs> what are the four? Okay. So this is um, an idea that I put together. First one is the cornucopians. These are the people who believe it'll be fine. Someone will think of something. It'll work out. We're not really in much trouble. It's all good. Okay. And the people who 
refuse to actually engage in this conversation at all. Um, people who want to keep the existing fossil fuel system going, people who believe, for example, that the green transition in its current form is what we do. You know, uh, most of the people working in the oil industry believe electric vehicles will come online and make everything so cheap that oil will become obsolete and they all drive Teslas, right? So they see this as an economic problem, yeah, right? But they don't want to hear about resource limits. Mm -hmm. And so you can't do anything with these people. Wave goodbye. See ya. Go and don't like, like don't, um, I, I, I found out the hard way. It's so much easier to go and work with like-minded people than to try and convince people of things they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. Right. Second group is a group I call the Vikings. Although when I was talking to Amanda Scott the other day, she said she prefers to call them the pirates. <laughs> um, these are people who realize everything's the wheels are falling off and it's getting tough. But instead of going through the hard work of making a new system, let's just go and take stuff from someone else. Okay. And the Raiders, the Raiders. And mm. so, yeah, that's, that's a good one. So, so let's go and take stuff from someone else. The problem is there comes a point when there's no more stuff to take or their ability to go and take is comes very difficult because they don't have like, you know, fuel to move around in the same way anymore. Yeah. And now th this is a, a mentality we're seeing at all levels, including nation state levels. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like this, this, this idea of predation, say. you know, uh, uh, instead of doing things collectively and can we make a better solution? No, no, no. Let's try and take stuff off each other. Yeah. Right. The third group is the group of the, I call the prepper community. And so these are the people who understand the wheels are falling off. Our normal systems that we normally operate with are not doing so well. And then they will step up and take care of business to make sure that the needs of society are looked to. And they do things like grow their own food. They'll manage their own sewage sanitation. They'll manage their own water supply. Uh, they'll either go without power generation or they'll generate their own power. Yeah, that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they'll use problem solving from any different sector. It doesn't have to be pretty as long as it works. Okay. The fourth group is a group I call the Arcadians. And they are the group that actually uh, looks 100 years into the future or something like that. And it says, how do we build a new society that's genuinely wise where humanity has learned everything it needs to learn and we can actually be genuinely sustainable and you have the harmonious merging of people, the social contract, the environment, in all its forms and all its scales and what technology we have available. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah. And so there's groups like the Venus project and Jacques Fresco that's been thinking about that since the seventies, but they, they, um, a lot of the work done thus far has not recognized the material shortages or the energy shortages. Right. Okay. And so the way forward for me is you take something like the Venus project and you integrate it into the prepper community. Yeah. What would happen if the prepper community were handed some uh, disruptive technology mm. that, that was able to recognize the commodity shortfalls mm. that would change everything? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it really is that, isn't it? It speaks to the fact that you do need people who feel themselves to be at risk, in a sense, mm. to be innovating because they understand yeah. what is at stake in a way that people at the top apparently simply seem to not. 
So, so, and, and in fact, because the people at the top, politicians, not leaders, they're followers, they will do what's that's popular. So they'll yeah. look to someone else about what that popular is. Yeah. Right. And so as an, uh, things fundamentally change, the new leaders are not the current leaders. Yeah. Other people will step up to the, and, and will, will, will take on that role. And the, and the old leaders will fight them because they don't want no, no, no paradigm, any given paradigm will fight for its own survival. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And so we've, there's, there's, there's a whole series of things here where, um, humanity is going to meet, meet these challenges, but we're all mm. different and we're all yeah. going to meet it differently. And, and every region has different, uh, opportunities and like, like for example, I can see us decentralizing. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. um, and what like good the, thing it would be too, to be honest. Well, you, you, we don't have a choice yeah. because, uh, the energy, the energy that goes into a biological organism defines its size and complexity, reduce that energy, which is what's about to happen to us. The size of the size organism complexity. and the complexity must reduce. Yeah. But you know what? I, I've been thinking about this recently. And I think that whilst like the size of the organism as we understand it, i.e. the systems and the technology and the infrastructure might reduce in complexity, I think that that's going to allow for a more complex society and culture to arrive. Because if you think about like our global culture, it is increasingly simplified. We are eradicating languages. We are getting rid of like national cultures, of indigenous cultures. Like everything has sort of been subsumed by this like global financial system. The way everybody interacts with each other is the same. It's trades on a market. We have the same currencies. We all use the same technology to kind of interact with each other. Everybody's speaking English. Like it's this increasing simplicity of human culture with this increasingly complex technological infrastructure, essentially. And so if that contracts, we could see a real, I hope, renaissance again in the complexity and magic and wonder of, of human organization. So the technosphere shrinks. Yeah. And the focus goes from technology that we depend upon to we become the strongest link in the chain. Yeah. And the focus becomes more local. So in Australia, for example, there's three levels of government. You've got the federal government that administers the whole continent, and then you've got six states and a couple of territories, mm -hmm. right? And then you've got your city councils and shire councils. Who is useful? The federal government uh, organizes defense and manages the currency, and they have screwed the pooch on both of those. So they're not useful. The state government doesn't necessarily own useful assets, um, but they tend to enforce policy on everyone else. They, they, they might own roads. They might own the, own the occasional power station. City councils and shire councils, they own the hospitals, the waste transfer stations, yeah. the schools. That's all the stuff we need. Yeah. And so what I can see happening is the authority of who decides what happens goes from, like the, the current system is the nation state, and that's in the current high energy. So the nation state will have to become simpler. Yeah. So instead of being all decisions made at a central point and sent out, and we all do it, It'll become more decentralized to the Shire Council level and the City Council level, whereas the nation state is now a transfer of information point. Yeah. Right. Now, the authority will go from the central federal level to the Shire Council level. Yeah. And, and then, then, then that then percolates onto the social contract that you were talking about that has, um, you know, we will do more ourselves. 
So the individual's got to become stronger and more capable and less technology dependent. And then we are going to become, um, yeah, you have to be wiser as a society, but the consequences of getting things wrong can no longer be deferred. And we can't go anywhere. So if we make a mess of it, we're messing up our own nest. Mm. Where at the moment when we make a mess of something, it's out of mind, out of sight. Yeah. So very yeah. quickly, by necessity, we will become a wiser society yeah. where, where reality will impose itself on a daily basis. Yeah. So collectively, we grow up yeah. and, we, and we face certain things that we have not faced until now. Yeah, yeah. It is a very important framing of the transition in a sense, because whilst it is likely going to be, it will be ugly and it will be bumpy um, mm. and we should have acted much, much, much sooner. The, the dictates of an energy contraction of shortages of then having to create a value system where we decide mm. what we are going to prioritize. What kind of people do we want to be? Yep. What do we want to invest in? How are we going to treat each other? That yep. can only be a good thing eventually, hopefully. Yep. So. The difference between the Vikings and the preppers and the mm. Acadians is how you see the people around you. Is the person next to you someone to go and take stuff off? Or is the person next to you somehow part of your solution for your long-term survival? And that will be demonstrated at. And, and if we all understand that there's not enough to go around and all of a sudden we're all poor, we all have to go, we all now have to go through what we're going through. And it's up to us to make the next future, whatever that is. Yeah. Step up, show up, clean up, or fade away. Yeah. It's a, or as, or, or as we like to say in Australia, harden up Australia. Right. Simon, I think you've given us an amazing tour of the situation uh, currently and what it might be in the future. Thank you so much for your time. I know I've already had you on as a guest before, but I'm going to ask you, just in case it's somebody new, who would you like to platform? Oh, Vandana Shiva. She, yeah. she has done some seriously, seriously useful work yeah. in terms of uh, we've got to collectively develop a, we've got to fix our relationship with the environment and we've got to do it at all levels and it's got to be done the way we live. And where things have gone off the rails is how we produce our food. And I believe Vandana has the, uh, she's got her hands on the solution of the paradigm we need to develop. Excellent. And All so, right. yeah, if you can catch her, she is a world class, uh, developer and she's, I, I consider her one of our thought leaders. Oh, wonderful. Great. I will, I will, I will try. I will try to access her. Yeah. Simon, thank you so much. You're welcome. If you'd like to learn more about Simon's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.